So we're going to move right along to this first panel. It's, it's called uh, Grading the TPP, What to Like and Not Like uh, about, uh, about the, the Agreement. I'm going to uh, play two roles. I'm, I'm a moderator, but I'm going to put my finger on the scale a little bit. Um, I'm going to give an overview of the paper that, that, we, that we did and the scoring methodology. But at the outset, just let, let me let you know that the, the formal paper is not ready yet. Uh, it will be out later in the summer. Uh, what we've done is we've um, extracted from the paper uh, what we've, the scores, the methodology, the scoring rationale. Uh, and that uh, abstract was available outside. There we go. Um, but there, if there were no copies left and you want an electronic version, you can go to this uh, URL right here. And there's a PDF of, of this abstract of the paper. Um, so what we have in mind for this panel is I'm going to give a bit of an overview uh, and talk about the scoring. Then I'm going to turn it over to uh, Bill Watson, uh, who's a trade policy analyst here at Cato. Uh, he's co-author of this forthcoming paper. His bio is on the Cato site to spare, you know, save us some time. I'm not going to introduce everybody uh, all that formally. Um, then we're going to go to Simon Lester, who's also a trade policy analyst here at Cato and a co-author of the paper. And his bio is also on the Cato site. Then uh, we're going to turn, turn it over to, to Derek Scissors, who's a resident scholar at AEI. Uh, he's been doing trade policy and US-China economic policy here in Washington for a long time, before AEI with uh, the Heritage Foundation. Derek's bio can be found on the AEI website. Uh, but you won't need to, to go there to learn about his reservations about the TPP. Uh, I'm sure he will gladly share them with us. Uh, I think Derek's analysis was one of the first ones published after the uh, the text of the agreement was released. Uh, so right out of the gate, uh, Derek expressed reservations, and we'll find out whether he's softened his positions at all. Um, so, so over the past couple of years, uh, libertarians and other free traders would question why or how I could support the TPP. It used to be the case that I would only get my hate mail from the left. I'd stake out my trade policy position get some angry question. But libertarians were asking the same sorts of things. You know, how can you support a, uh, a, a free trade agreement, a managed trade agreement that, uh, that has, that's full of corporate giveaways and, and, and excessive rules, global governance? Um, and I said, well, I haven't taken a position yet uh, with respect to the TPP, and, and, but we're going to uh, evaluate it and get back to you. Um, it is certainly true that it used to be the case that trade agreements were much more about border barriers because Trade restrictions were mostly found uh, at the border. Um, but with the proliferation of uh, transnational supply chains and cross-border investment, the nature of, of international competition has changed. Now you have foreign headquartered companies competing right here in the United States next to US companies and vice versa. So the nature of protectionism has changed. It's not just a, a border concern anymore. Uh, protectionism can be found in national regulations. Uh, in performance requirements, in bi-local provisions, investment benchmarks, intellectual property laws, and on and on and on. So as a result, modern trade agreements uh, have also evolved to try to address these newer forms of, of discrimination. So whether free traders should rejoice in this or recoil um, depends. Uh, you know, about this broadening of the scope, it really depends um, on a few things. Uh, the whole point of trade for free traders is to expand the size of the market to enable greater levels of specialization um, and, and, and economies of scale. And reducing tariffs, obviously, is one way to do that. That's probably the classic way to do that, to facilitate uh, cross-border integration. But that integration will also be hindered if enterprises have to deal with two sets of rules, two sets of standards, uh, have to comply with uh, different uh, uh, structures of governance. So there is some uh, argument, at least, that the harmonization of product standards uh, or equivalence of regulations, similarity of uh, IP regimes, things like that, might be important to expanding the size of the market. But it is this, this latter form, this newer form of, of, of trade liberalization uh, that sort of defines modern trade agreements, 21st century trade agreements. And it's why the TPP, I think, is so controversial and contentious. I think there is legitimate grounds to, to question uh, the direction that our trade agreements are taking us and, and to be vigilant about what, what it actually does. Um, 
So for free traders, the ideal is free trade. No border barriers, no domestic regulations or uh, policies that have protectionist intent or, or effects, um, or that otherwise bestow relative privileges on existing you know, incumbent domestic firms and their products. Uh, we don't like super, uh, superfluous rules uh, that are merely tangentially related uh, to trade, but violations of which can be invoked to restrict trade. And so a measure, measured against those standards, the TPP, with its 5,500 pages of explicit rules and exemptions, would not really pass the free trade, trade test. Uh, the TPP is not free trade. It is a managed trade agreement like all of our trade agreements. Um, but you know, expecting the TPP to deliver free trade, I think, is a bit unrealistic. Uh, the outcome is simply politically unattainable. So holding out for the ideal would, in essence, make the perfect enemy of the good, when the good could possibly be better than the status quo. So the question we ask in, in, in starting this paper uh, is that if the TPP delivers more liberalization than restriction and can be shown to likely enhance our economic liberties uh, and, and better approaches are unrealistic, why not support the TPP? So we set out to evaluate the deal. And I'm just going to show you some of these slides. Um, well, there's a lot of text here. I promise you this is the only one that has text in it. Um, Better perhaps to you know go online and, and, and read it yourself. But we 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 evaluated the chapters, the rules, and the um, uh, provisions of each chapter according to these questions through the prism of these questions, and we assigned scores of from zero to ten. So zero would be restrictionist, protectionist. Ten would be free trade. Five would be neutral. Well, we didn't assign any zeros or any tens. Uh, but we, we did find some in between. Actually, no ones or nines either. Um, but what we did was we evaluated 22 of the 30 chapters. We assigned three scholars to each chapter. And then we discussed uh, each, each finding. And we debated. And we reached consensus. Sometimes that was hard. Some of us are a little bit more stalwart on some issues than others. Uh, but uh, we, we reached consensus on, on the scoring. Uh, and these, this is a table uh, of, the, of the chapters. Um, and we, we identified the nature of the chapter. Some of the chapters were administrative or uh, suggestive, meaning that there really aren't real serious commitments there. There are ideas for moving forward. Very hard to measure whether the terms are liberalizing or, or not. Uh, they, in some cases, they might be liberalizing, but there's, there's no um, commitments that are really firmly made. Uh, and then we talked about, and we identified market access and rules and governance. So this is uh, the presentation of those scores in descending order, uh, in ascending order of chapter. It's not, it's, it's a little congested. So let me go here. This this uh, sorts our results uh, by in descending order of score. And what you see is five of the uh, 22 chapters received a score of eight, which was the highest score that we gave to any of the chapters. Um, and the lowest scores were, were, were three. Uh, the mode was six. Um, these guys are going to talk specifically about some of these things. But what, what, what we re recognized was important to do uh, was to come up with sort of average scores by, by the nature and by the tier. Let me, I'm sorry, let me describe the tier. So we identified some chapters that we thought were more important than others, uh, more significant to, the, to answer the question of whether or not the agreement was liberalizing. Uh, so eight of them are first tier, and 14 of them are second tier. And this, uh, this is just shows the frequency. This, this, show, this is a graphic depiction of the table you just saw. So you see that most received sixes. The second uh, highest was eight. But they're scattered from three to eight. This one breaks down by market, uh, by market access versus rules. So we found, found the market access uh, chapters to be better on average than the rules chapters. And then this is the final table that, that you need to see. Um, so we sorted it by market access, rules and governance, and then by tier. And then I don't know if you can see this, these, these average scores here. If you can't, I will just tell them to you. So we have a simple average score, but that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. That is to say, a simple average score makes sense if every chapter should be weighted toward the final the same way. There really isn't a very good way to come up with an average score, I think, for the whole, uh, for the whole agreement, unless you break it down by 
segment uh, by, by nature, by tier. Um, so 5.82 was the average score and on a simple average basis. And since it's above five, we find that the agreement is on net trade liberalizing. Um, market access is considerably better, 6.18 versus rules, 5.45. Then we did a simple average of the first tier, the important ones, which is 6.63. So um, we're not trying to rationalize support. We, <laughs> we, are, uh, we just figured there's different ways to slice and dice this, and that any weighting, we did do a weighting, and I'll explain that in a second, uh, any weighting uh, is prone to subjectivity. But what we did is we, for that weighted average score of 6.03, we weighted the tier one scores. We gave it twice as much weight as the tier one scores. So, and then the one at the bottom uh, takes into account that there were no tens, that we weren't going to assign anything free trade because there was no chapter here that was uh, indicative of free trade. So uh, instead of over 10, I converted it to over nine, where we converted it to over nine and come up with a 6.7. So that's kind of a a fictitious number. What's important is to look at the numbers of each chapter and weight it as you see appropriate, what's important to you. In the paper, uh, we go into uh, a lot of detail about the rationale, the summary of the chapters, assessments, pros and cons. That will be out soon. The rationales are available with this paper. Um, but I am going to stop there and ask Bill to come up, who's going to talk more specifically about the market access stuff. All right, thanks. Thanks, Dan. I, um, I uh, have the, the enviable task of getting to talk about the good things uh, in the TPP and to tell you how good they are. Um, when we're talking about market access uh, in a trade agreement, this is the, this is the core uh, of, of what a free trade agreement ought to do. Um, we can talk about uh, you know, new issues and new rules, um, but there's still a lot of work left to do getting rid of tariffs and quotas. Uh, and a free trade agreements like the TPP are the, uh, the best way we have at the moment of dealing with that. Uh, so the, the essential first question we need to ask if we're going to decide um, you know, going to balance the, the pros and cons of the TPP is uh, how, how good are the pros? Uh, how good is the TPP at uh, this core job of liberalizing trade by eliminating trade barriers? Um, and uh, I think what we, um, informally, uh, what I, the score that I would give it is uh, pretty good. Uh, and um, um, let, me, let me start uh, by uh, going through uh, the, the general market access tariff cuts, looking at um, just just tariff treatment in the TPP. This is this is the basic stuff, uh, and you see from a from a bird's eye view, looking broadly, uh, that the TPP's tariff commitments are strong. Uh, we're getting roughly, on average, ninety percent of tariffs going to zero immediately upon implementation. Uh, the remaining. Nine nine percent, right? Uh, there's going to be a one percent, uh, just about one percent of tariff lines still sitting around. Um, but within 15 years, we'll have 99 percent liberalization. Uh, 15 years is a is a long time. It sounds like a long time to me, um, uh, and it's not going to take 15 years for all of them. It's it's some a lot of it is five years, some of it is 10 years. It's just the last little bits um, in 15 years. This is, uh, you know, it's certainly not. Um, immediate free trade. Um, it's not even immediate free trade between the members uh, of the agreement. But it is better. Uh, it's better than uh, a lot of past US agreements. And it's certainly better than other agreements uh, that other countries are negotiating. Um, the RCEP agreement, uh, which is another, another Asian, a large Asian free trade agreement that has some of the TPP members, also China and India, uh, isn't getting anywhere near 90% tariff reduction. Uh, so th this is a this is a, a a strong agreement going into the region, uh, getting broad tariff uh, elimination. Um, so having said that, at the basic level, it's good. Uh, there are still some weaknesses, right? And I said 99% uh, of tariffs are going to be liberalized. That means that there will still be some protectionism, right? And um, 
that 1% that is left is, in essence, the protectionist policies that were so politically um, uh, unstoppable uh, that even the TPP could not achieve uh, a reduction or an elimination of these policies. And that's unfortunate. I was hoping uh, that the TPP, being such a large agreement, uh, could muster the political will, the, the political will could, could happen in that agreement to get rid of some of these programs. And what we see is a little bit increased trade, but not really liberalization. Um, so the, I think the, the one example that we'll hear a lot about um, uh, from the U.S. side uh, is auto tariffs. Uh, the U.S. imposes a 2.5% tariff on cars from Japan and a 25% tariff on trucks from Japan, and those will be phased out between 25 and 30 years from now. Um, that's an incredibly long time. Uh, that's basically never um, is a generation from now. Um, I mean, when when uh, you know, 29 years from now, when when all of my colleagues are retired, and I will still be talking about trade policy, and I will be telling people about the the TPP ratification fight of 2018, uh, and talking about you know, isn't it amazing? that we used to make cars in the United States, and we had these tariffs, uh, you know, and my grandchildren would say, well, you know, what's a car? Uh, <laughs> 30 years from now, it's, it's an incredible amount of change that will go on. Um, so I, I, I kind of think of that as, as just, it might as well just be never. Um, similar issues with tariff rate quotas, where there will still be quotas in place for US sugar. Uh, the Canada's dairy supply management program will still be in place. Uh, the TPP had an opportunity, there was a lot of hope that there would be major reforms in Japan's agriculture markets, uh, rice, beef, pork, uh, highly protected markets, and um, a lot of benefit could go to Japan. Japan would benefit immensely uh, from, from being able to cut out these programs. And what we see is a, a little bit of liberalization, some more access for, uh, for imports, uh, but not the kind of major reform that, that would have made the TPP particularly great. If we could have gotten rid of these programs, I would be up here saying the TPP is amazing because we got rid of these programs. But this, these are the sensitivities that are remaining, um, the, the sort of sticking points where, where the TPP just wasn't able uh, to overcome. Um, so we have broad liberalization, um, and the tariff cuts, the liberalization from the tariff cuts uh, has to be weighed against the rules of origin in the agreement. Um, all preferential trade agreements have to have rules of origin. Uh, you have to know which products it is that are going to get the zero tariffs. Uh, you lower the tariffs from, for products from Japan. What is a product from Japan? How do you determine which products get that, uh, get that preferential tariff treatment? Uh, and the way that we do that is by looking at uh, regional content. How much of the value of the product was added or created within the free trade zone. Um, now, if you have particularly strict rules of origin, you can do a lot of damage uh, to the liberalization commitments you've already made. Um, if, you, if you want to import a, uh, you know, a product from Canada and it has to be 90% of the value come from Canada, what it means is that any products that, that, that rely on imported products from outside of the region, imported parts, uh, they won't be able to get good tariff treatment. Um, and when you go through product by product, the way that we do in free trade agreements to set specific rules of origin, there's a lot of opportunity for rent seeking uh, to, to create a rule of origin that benefits a particular group of companies um, and gives them an advantage over their competitors that might have a slightly different supply chain arrangement. Um, and, and so you privilege one of those over the other. Now, the TPP's rules of origin are, I'm happy to say, generally more liberal than previous US free trade agreements. Uh, it's about 5%. So if you look at previous US free trade agreements, the Korea, uh, FTA, Colombia, Australia, uh, you, and you compare it with the TPP, you'll see a, a, it's not a hard and fast rule, but generally uh, the TPP's rules of origin, product by product, are about 5% lower. Um, now, for specific products uh, that were the subject of a lot of negotiation, that's going to be different. And in actually, those cases, the TPP is, is, is in some ways a, a lot better because you had uh, you know, 11 countries working on this. Um, and so sometimes the, the rules of origin ended up really well. And that's the case uh, with autos. 
it's become a, a, a sticking point uh, in the ratification fight uh, that the TPP's rules of origins for auto parts, which are about 30 to 45% depending on the product, are a lot better than NAFTA's rules of origin for auto parts, about 60%. So now NAFTA was responsible, you give NAFTA credit for integrating the North American auto industry, creating uh, a single industry that spans three countries. But the high rules of origin protect that integrated industry from foreign competition. And the TPP will, if we have these, these uh, uh, more liberal rules of origin, open up uh, for a lot more competition in that market. And so we've seen uh, Hillary Clinton has, has singled out uh, auto parts uh, rules of origin as a complaint. Uh, so if we are ever going to renegotiate the TPP, if that gets, if that gets done uh, in the next administration, this may be one of the issues that's on the table. Um, the, um, and, and let me just quickly mention the TPP continues uh, the practice of uh, adding special protection for textiles, the US textile industry, through special rules of origin for textiles and apparel. Uh, basically, if you want uh, to import um, clothing into the United States uh, duty-free, it needs to be made from fabric produced by American uh, textile companies. Uh, it's, a, it's a form of, of protectionism through a free trade agreement. Uh, the TPP just continues that policy uh, the way that past agreements have. Uh, another important area for liberalization is government procurement. Uh, governments, um, particularly foreign governments in the developing world, buy a lot of stuff. And they um, often do so uh, while privileging domestic companies. Um, we do this in the United States through Buy American rules. Um, if you want to do business with the government, you need to use uh, domestic products or be a domestic company. Um, there is a WTO agreement. Uh, that seeks to rein in some of that practice and to liberalize those markets. And the US is a member of that agreement and has some commitments. The TPP doesn't really go very much beyond those. So we're not going to see a lot of new liberalization in the United States. But for Vietnam and Malaysia, who are not members of the WTO agreement, of the, of the um, government procurement agreement, the WTO, uh, the TPP uh, will, will be a, a significant inroad for them into legalizing and rationalizing uh, their government procurement policies, uh, which, which will be a benefit. Um, and finally, let me talk about services. Um, services uh, is sometimes a little awkward to talk about from a trade perspective. Um, it's a very important part of, of global trade. It's a very important part of what what the United States is trading and what we're producing, uh, providing services and exporting those services around the world. Um, but it's not something that goes through a customs office. It's hard to quantify. Uh, and it's hard to liberalize because you can't just eliminate a border barrier. Um, and so what we do and what's been done uh, at the WTO 20 years ago um, with the Gantz Agreement is to set up rules of non-discrimination. So you can't discriminate against foreigners and to prohibit a variety of uh, quantity limitations on how many services can be provided, how many companies can provide a particular service, and where they can do it, and how many people they can hire. Um, the, the big contribution that the TPP makes in services is, like many other free trade agreements, it has a negative list uh, for services liberalization, where at the WTO, uh, the rules only apply when when a country has singled out particular industries or particular sectors for liberalization. The TPP applies those same rules to all service sectors unless you mention them uh, by name. And the, um, so uh, you know, this is where sensitivities come in again. Uh, we see uh, um, the Jones Act uh, is, is an area where the US has carved out um, exceptions for itself so that it doesn't have to liberalize uh, maritime services um, and, and, and uh, commercial shipping and, and airline services. Um, and the big benefit from services liberalization in a trade agreement is that you don't have, um, you don't have the same kind of preferential or trade diversion problems necessarily because when you, when you eliminate discrimination in a services market, it's usually done on a non-preferential basis. Uh, not singling out particular countries. 
so uh, when a country opens up its services market, it tends to do it for all comers, not just for TPP members. Um, so uh, here's all of the, the market access chapters of the TPP. You can see, with the exception of textiles and apparel, which just shouldn't exist as a separate chapter, um, we're getting positive scores, some really good, most a little good. Uh, and I think um, the general, that's the general uh, thrust of the TPP for market access. Better than most uh, US FTAs, certainly better than other FTAs in the region, uh, a, a step forward in US trade policy. Um, but you know, not enough to be amazing and overcome some of the political barriers that we already knew existed. Thanks. So I'm going to offer more of the same of what Dan and Bill have already given you. That's not too surprising. We've all chosen to work here together. We tend to agree on these things. Um, as we've emphasized, what we at Cato are looking for in a trade agreement is trade liberalization as much as possible. Um, other people might focus on other issues. Uh, you know, we've, people talk about foreign policy, how the TPP is an important part of the pivot to Asia and US foreign policy. Um, President Obama has touted this agreement as being the most progressive in history with its environmental protections, its labor rights protections. Uh, there are provisions on intellectual property that some people like. Um, but for us, none of these things are that important. The question is, and this next slide I debated whether to show, but I'm committed to it, so here it is. Uh, where's the liberalization? That's the three of us looking at, scouring the TPP looking for the liberalization. Uh, millennials out there might have to Google that reference um, if you don't recall it, if you didn't grow up with it. Um, so, so, yeah, so when evaluating a trade agreement, the two questions for us, for us are how much liberalization is in there and how does this liberalization balance out against the regulatory and governance issues that are also in there? Uh, Bill, Bill focused on the good liberalization. I'm going to talk about one final aspect of that liberalization, but then I'm going to get on to the, the regulatory side where I'll be a little more critical. I'm glad Ambassador Froman ha has left so he doesn't have to hear all of this. I'm going to start uh, with the International Trade Commission's report, um, which was you know, uh, one, of the, one of the good economic studies on this. And you know, we looked through it. Uh, the ITC is giving us good economic analysis. Let's, let's see what liberalization we can find in there. And so you know, we start off with these uh, baseline numbers they give us about the, the amount of GDP or real income increases. And you know, it's a little disappointing to see this small number. And it kind of forced us to say, all right, you know, we, let, let's look at this really closely. And let's see if we can find some liberalization. And, and the ITC's report, uh, they divided up the, the liberalization part into to three, three aspects, the tariffs, tariff rate quotas, and non-tariff measures, liberalization of trade and services, and liberalization of investment. And so Bill talked a good amount about tariffs. He kind of ran out of time and couldn't talk that much about services. What I'm going to focus on now is liberalization of investment. And this, 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 uh, this slide just shows a breakdown of the amount of liberalization in the goods provisions, the service provisions, and the investment provisions. So when I was looking at the investment provisions, uh, the ITC kind of breaks down based on what it refers to as the regulatory restrictiveness index, um, how much restrictiveness there in the investment regimes there is for each TPP country in 2014. Uh, and then how much there will be after the TPP. And what struck me, and that's why I've highlighted it, is how New Zealand's restrictiveness was quite high, the highest to begin with, and then went down considerably. So I thought, well, this is a good place to look. Um, this table shows something similar. It's probably, probably a little harder to read, but you, can, you may be able to see that for just about each sector, New Zealand is, is fairly restrictive. And so my question was, why? What is New Zealand doing that's restricting investment, and what does the TPP do about it? Because if, if there's something good here, then I want to highlight it. Um, and it, it turns out there's a pretty simple answer, uh, which is that there's um, an approval process uh, for foreign investors in New Zealand that pr uh, currently, prior to the TPP going to enforce, says that for any investment in, in New Zealand that's under $100 million, it's automatically improved, uh, approved, um, whereas if it was above $100 million, it had to go through the screening process where the New Zealand government would look at, uh, at things like the good character of the business and uh, the business experience. Um, and so what the TPP does is raises this thre threshold from $100 million to $200 million. So that's good. What that means is 
it's easier to get investment improved in, in New Zealand. And so I looked this up, and apparently in the past five years, there were 87 applications uh, by foreign investors um, with investments above $100 million. And I think it is 45 of them were between $100 and $200 million. Million. So that, you know, what this means is after the TPP goes into force, um, investors uh, at this range, and there are many of them, will have an easier time in investing in New Zealand. Um, in our view, it would be better if that threshold were even higher, but that's what we have. And sort of to, you know, to reiterate what Bill has said, this is some good liberalization there. We wish it would have gone further, um, but you put all this together, the tariffs, the services liberalization, the investment liberalization, um, we see a lot of good liberalization in the TPP. Uh, there may be better ways to do free trade in an ideal world, but this is the, the real world, and what the TPP has given us is something that's pretty good. But on the other hand, uh, this isn't all you have in the TPP. And so what I want to do now is you know, go to the other side and, and make some critical arguments about some aspects of it. Uh, and um, Dan has earlier in his, in his talk um, gave a nice breakdown. I, I don't have the slide to put up there again, showing you all of the different TPP chapters and the ones that we thought were better, the ones that we thought were worse. And it, it's pretty clear that you know, we think most highly of the liberalization ones and we're, we're, we're moderately positive or, or negative about some of the ones that deal with regulatory or governance issues. And I'm just going to go through, I'm not going to go through all of them, but I'll go through a couple of them with you and I will explain a little bit you know, our thinking about this, or at least my thinking because we don't all agree on everything here. Um, so first issue. Uh, Technical barriers to trade, sanitary and phytosanitary measures. Uh, you know, I don't want to get too bogged down in the details. Those of you who are trade law experts out there already know what I'm what I'm talking about here. Uh, but there are uh, there are WTO agreement provisions on both of these issues. Um, technical barriers to trade basically says that product regulations can't be more trade restrictive than necessary, can't be discriminatory. Sanitary and phytosanitary rules say that food safety measures have to be based on science. And uh, so the TPP ha has rules on, on these same things. And the first point that I want to make is that because we already have rules at the WTO that say something very similar, I'm a little skeptical that, that the TPP will do much more than, than has already been done. If there are complaints about another country using food safety measures to restrict trade, which there often are, uh, governments have in the past gone to the WTO, and I would think they, in the future, they will do the same thing. So I'm not sure that the DPP adds that much. Um, there are, especially on in the, uh, the issue of technical barriers to trade, there are some new rules. There are some annexes uh, that cover specific issues in more detail. Uh, I will show you one of them. Uh, I think, as you can see from the text, it's complicated. Um, it, it's, there's debate about what this particular provision means uh, related to governments requiring private companies turn over private keys in, in matters of encryption. Um, so the, it's hard to say that these rules are, are liberalizing. It's hard to know what they actually do at this point. So um, there's nothing necessarily harmful in these technical barriers to trade and SPS uh, rules. Uh, the question is more just how liberalizing are they really, and that's why we gave it a six, sort of moderate benefit, but, but nowhere near what we saw from the, the market access provisions. Another issue that's been highly touted is e-commerce. Uh, I, I do think it's fair to say that the e-commerce chapter of the TPP breaks new ground. Um, there was talk earlier, uh, I think Ambassador Froman mentioned the free flows of information. And I know there are people who, who think that this is a great step forward. Um, and it may be. Um, my, my only criticism of it is it also may not be. Uh, I'm not sure, based on what I see in the text, how much this chapter will do to promote the free flow of information. It may be that in, in five years, some government has some restriction on information and gets challenged at the TPP, and there's some litigation, uh, and we find out a little bit more. But in theory, it could do something good, um, but I, I, I'm waiting to see um, before, I, before I buy into that. In addition to that, there are rules in the e-commerce chapter that actually require more regulation. I have two examples here. One is that each says each party shall adopt or maintain consumer laws to prescribe fraudulent or deceptive commercial activities. Another says each party shall adopt or maintain measures regarding unsolicited commercial electronic messages. I assume that's spam. So, so the TPB is actually requiring more regulation. Uh, here at Cato, we're often skeptical of regulation. We're not against all of it, but I'd want to see what this regulation looks like. So the e-commerce chapter, we've given it a pretty positive seven, uh, but it, you know, we still have some doubts as to what it will mean in practice. 
Now, going to <laughs> on the more negative side, um, I, I think within the, the libertarian community, there are different views on the value of intellectual property protection. Um, I, I feel like there, there's a, a significant group who, who's very skeptical of it, and I, I am in that group, I confess. So, uh, you know, we've given the intellectual property score a four. Um, just to give you the, the most obvious example of, of somewhere where I would say, and maybe others would say, this goes too far in terms of its regulatory and governance impact uh, is, is that the, the TPP intellectual property chapter requires all TPP parties to have a copyright term of life of the author plus 70 years. Formerly, a few countries had a copyright term of life of the author plus 50 years. That seemed fine to me, maybe even excessive. Now we've extended it even further. So I, I definitely see some negatives in the IPG, IP chapter, and that's why it ended up where it did. On labor and the environment, uh, the TPP, I think it's fair to say, breaks new ground, especially in the labor chapter, uh, for example, by requiring a minimum wage. Now, I know there are people out there who, who would think, well, you know, minimum wage is obviously good because that means people get paid more. But, but many of us, including myself, uh, look at economic studies of the minimum wage and say, you know what, this actually you know, uh, raises unemployment. So we're not all that excited about a minimum wage. and We don't necessarily want to see it in a trade agreement. Um, <coughs> I think, I think it is fair to say everyone would like to see better working conditions around the world, including countries like Vietnam. Um, but I, I'm also skeptical that using one country's economic leverage to tell another country how to, 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 to run, run its economy, run its, its labor, uh, to, to adopt, to, to have labor regulations or other regulations is problematic. Um, so labor and the environment, we're, we're pretty skeptical of. Uh, environment got a four, labor got a three. Lastly, let me just uh, mention investment. So I talked earlier about the benefits of investment liberalization. I'm still pretty positive about those. Uh, but another aspect of the investment chapter is rules on investor state dispute settlement. Again, this is the area where I think libertarians and others can disagree. Uh, but I've, I've written some critical things about it, the idea that foreign investors can sue host governments uh, when they see regulations that they think are, are treating them badly. Uh, I think this is more about litigation than liberalization. Uh, I think this is one of those areas where the, the main beneficiaries are the lawyers. Uh, as a lawyer, I, I appreciate that. Uh, but I don't think it's necessary as a, as a matter of policy. So, so just to reiterate, I think, what Dan is saying, I mean, we, you know, we tried to carefully you know, look at all the liberalization we could find and then also look at all the, the rules and governance issues and see what we thought of them and evaluate as best as we can you know, now, before the TPP has even gone into effect, uh, how we think they'll play out. And so on balance, we support the TPP. Uh, we're always hoping for something better. I'm always an optimist. The next one's going to be better. Uh, for now, this is what we've got, and we've given it our endorsement. All right, as Dan mentioned, uh, I wrote a paper last November right after TPP text came out. I read it basically in one sitting. So I read it again in case I had gone insane from staying up for 70 hours. Uh, my paper was quicker, obviously, and also shallower than the Cato study that, that's going to come out and that my colleagues are talking about on the panel. And I would say quicker and shallower. We're in Washington, DC. Clearly, I win. Um, <laughs> Uh, my quick and quicker and shallower view is not that different from Cato. I'm sorry. I, I, I don't mean to be too boring. There's one big point of difference. I will also talk about some different things than they talked about, so maybe this won't be that dull. Uh, I agree that it's a, it's a positive agreement. I happen to think it's only moderately or modestly positive, and I think endorsing a modestly positive agreement, as I expect the business community to do, because that's what they do, think about three months later, um, is myopic. And we have done this before on trade, and we've gotten sorry, uh, and we're going to do it again. And 10 years from now, we will be unhappy with these terms. 15 years from now, we will be more unhappy with these terms. So we don't disagree necessarily on the aggregate scoring. We disagree on the implications of that scoring and what the value of the agreement is in the long term. Um, so I'll get to the main reasons I think that. I, I would rather uh, be berated by some of my friends in the audience in public than in private, so I'm going to want to save some opportunity for questions. Um, let's talk about the things that I don't care about and, and that are brought up a lot. Uh, we're not brought up by, by my colleagues because they're not actually in the agreement. There's no binding currency provision. Good. Writing such a provision would be almost impossible. There is a reserve currency country in the agreement, and there are non-reserve currency countries in the agreement. You can't write the same 
language for both of them. And if you write one that's different, you're just going to infuriate the currency crowd here anyway. Um, we can talk in great detail about that. That's kind of a slam dunk. You can't write the provision to be the same for the US and for everyone else. Um, People make claims about how currency costs U.S. jobs can't actually link currency values to U.S. jobs. They run it through GDP with implicit assumptions about GDP's relationship with jobs and the trade deficit that are false. Um, and this, this is just a game. Uh, it's a political game. And the fact that there's no currency letter in here matters politically, does not matter economically. The agreement shouldn't have one. It's better for, for not having one that's binding. Um, ISDS, I, Investor State Dispute Settlement, again, who cares? Uh, I spent over a decade working with companies in China. Um, you don't go, you don't take coherent governments that can retaliate across a range of market access issues to international tribunals because they will screw you. You talk about it, you hope that you can get their attention, you don't do it. Um, so, I mean, this is just like, it's just not going to have that much of an impact except in small countries. I frankly don't care about small countries, I'm sorry. I know I should. I should really care, but I don't. That's why I study China and India. Um, the, the, the hatred expressed by some of the, peop by some of the people who, who really criticize ISDS, including in the TPA debate, which I was a big part of behind the scenes, is odd because it they've now absolutely openly contradicted themselves about Brexit which is, you know, ISDS is, is giving up our sovereignty to these international bureaucrats. I can't believe the British didn't, you know, want to leave their sovereignty to international bureaucrats. I mean, so there's a lot of hypocrisy on this issue, and it's very difficult to wade through, through it all. And I would just say, look, in practical terms, ISDS is going to make very little difference. If your main thing here is, is to protect the rights of, of little countries uh, over the big, bad United States, then, then you care about it. But most of the people talking about ISDS don't actually care about that. They just want to block the agreement, and they're using ISDS as an excuse. Uh, I will talk a little bit about IP, because I do care about IP. Um, uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff here. I, the thing is, in, in the TPP, the thing is that if we could enforce, enforce existing rules, that would be a bigger gain than changing them. Um, I'm not that interested in Vietnam saying it's going to become a better protector of IP or other countries that might join in the future. I'm more interested in their enforcement. The FDA just can't do that. Um, you, you can't enforce the rules when you write them. And so I don't, I, I like the IP provisions, they're fine. Uh, but, but the people talking about this are, are right that the proof is in the pudding and there's really no way to evaluate um, that in advance. So those are things that some people think matter. I even think IP matters, and, and yet I don't, I don't think the TPP can say a lot about it. Um, what are my problems with the TPP, and, my, and where's my clash? Because those things, weren't, we don't really clash here uh, in this panel. Where's my clash with Cato and the, the pro-TPP side come from? Again, I, I think it's a small positive. Um, but I think there are two long-term problems that, that are going to make this agreement a mistake. And one of them is a big clash with Cato, and, and so let's, let's talk about that. That's services sector. There's nothing wrong with a services chapter. The grade up there for the chapter, I, it's fine. Um, but, but the non-conforming measures in the services are literally a foot high. And I've already been told that I'm just mad that I had to read them twice, and that's why I don't like the services provisions. Okay, fine. Nonetheless, they're a foot high. Um, the idea that there was a negative list mentioned by one of my colleagues um, is better than the positive list. Yeah, I suppose, except when the negative list is a foot high. Right, now you're not in, in a useful negative list. You're in a, look, we adopted a negative list, and countries do this all the time, and then the negative list is prohibitive. Um, the way you would get the services chapter to work, and, and, and this was said before, and I think most of us here know it, the U.S. is the most comprehensively competitive services exporter in the world. This is absolutely crucial for us to benefit. The ITC gives us squat out of this, and they're right. And they're right because the nonconforming measures block uh, any way to model this as a big gain for the United States. The way you would get a gain is if you imagine that there will be more services liberalization in the future. I didn't think that was convincing before we had the, the current protectionist turn. I certainly don't think it's convincing now. I don't think adding new countries is going to make things involve less in the way of services exemptions. They're going to have their own services exemptions. And the, the, the negotiating parties are actually sensitive to this, and they're talking about, well, you have to join on at least as good terms as this. You know, that's a qualitative statement. It binds no 
no one, and I think it's completely unrealistic. When I say that in 10 to 15 years we're going to be sorry, in 10 to 15 years TPP will not have open global services, we will have blown this opportunity, we will, as the, as the ITC estimates, have essentially no benefits uh, compared to the size of the US economy from services, and everyone, you know, the, the main goal in my mind, macroeconomic goal of TPP will have not been fulfilled, and we will have done a big political heavy lift, as the next panel will talk about, to get squat. Um, the other problem I have is not, was not emphasized by the panel, and, it, and, it, and it's peculiar to my background. The only reason I'll emphasize, I, I will justify bringing it up is it matters a lot politically. It's not a big substantive thing in the TPP because it's not about a TPP party. You might be getting where I'm going here. It's the competitive neutrality chapters, in particular the one on state-owned enterprises, uh, and the reference to China. So as a, I, I, about one senator per week calls me into his office or, or into her office and then says, I don't think we're going to have a vote. But if there's a vote, what should I think about this? And I'm always trying to get them to have not protectionist arguments against TPP. I don't, I don't want to advance the protectionist side when I'm criticizing TPP. So I say, don't vote against on currency. And the number one thing they latch on to is China, 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 China. We all know that. China's not at the agreement. It was impossible for the negotiators to include China in the agreement. And yet, we're going to criticize them for not dealing with China. And I'm going to do it right now. Um, the rules in governing SOEs are made for countries that want to behave at least to some extent. And I'm thinking about Singapore, which kind of wants to behave but doesn't you know, entirely want to behave. And if you judge it on the basis of, is it going to keep the Singaporeans from uh, uh, you know, being abusive with their, their two large SOEs, the answer is, it does OK. It's not that bad. And that, that might be the grade that, that Cato assigned to it. Um, the problem is, as we know, that the countries who don't want to behave with regard to SOEs. And there, there's a big one, and there's some smaller ones. And the TPP just fails miserably to, to restrict them. And maybe that's an unfair, because how could they? They're not part of the agreement. But that's, in fact, the case. Um, the fundamental thing about SOEs that is completely unaddressed in the, in the TPP is SOEs don't fail. They're set up because the government doesn't want the private sector to engage in this activity. It wants a state entity to engage in the activity. So trying to make them act like private firms is exactly the wrong thing to do. Um, the only thing that matters is their scope. There are no sector limits on SOE operations. There's some implementation designs that would, you know, how what the ownership is, blah, blah, blah. It would take me literally a day to get the chi entire Chinese sect state sector um, out of the TPP reg regulations on ownership and still totally controlled by the state. So we have a fundamental disagreement on what is an important political issue. If you're scoring TPP, as, as my colleagues have done, I wouldn't expect this to be this enormous weight. And, and in fact, with regard to the TPP parties, it's OK. But politically, and with regard to an extension, and with regard to what I happen to think is a major issue in the world economy, it fails. So um, I, you know, I don't, you know, the, the defense of here is, defense of this, in my mind, is, is, is short term, and it, it involves external factors. It was brought up. Um, before that, you know, some people care about foreign policy here. I, I don't. If you do, I get it. Fine. Um, we just are judging it on different merits. The uh, the only thing the business community likes it because the business community just likes anything that's better than right now, and they're not thinking ahead. I, I, I you know, I'm not that far from Cato on this, but I really don't see how free traders can like this deal. They can tolerate it. They can say we're going to go backwards under the next under the next administration, or this is defensive rather than offensive, or you know, it's OK, why not? Um, where the next panel is going to talk about political heavy lifting. When I come in as a free trader to, to a, a US congressional office, and they say, should I take the heat for this? I say, no, it's not worth it. And I mean, ultimately, that's where I come down. It's not a bad agreement. It has some parts that I think are bad uh, and, and, and will ultimately make us unhappy. But basically, it's just not worth it. Thanks. You're very subdued today, Derek. <laughs> um, before we open up to questions, I just want to just address one point, and maybe, maybe you guys do as well. I mean, I, I disagree with some of the things you said. And, and one, one point that I'd like to call your attention to is chapter 30 of this agreement, uh, the what it, final provisions. We gave that an eight, and, 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 and that takes account. It, that's about accessions, that, that sort of protocol. And that takes account of the fact that this is a living agreement. And this agreement is already working to, to uh, inspire unilateral reforms in Asia. You see Taiwan, 
China, the Philippines, Indonesia, Thailand are engaging in all sorts of reforms to be able to accede to this agreement. Uh, that's a success already. Uh, that's good for those countries, it's good for us. Um, and really, there's no other game in town. And uh, I, I, I don't see why you can't pursue an agreement that the terms of which can change as new members exceed, uh, why you would choose nothing uh, as, as, as opposed to that. There, there is liberalization here. There, you, you've seen our scores. I don't want to get too, too into that, but does anybody else up here want to? Well, I'm just going to, uh, one sentence response to that. I think very clear that some of the countries are moving towards uh, changes to make to join the TPP because they thought the TPP would be a much tougher agreement and more liberalizing than it is, and they think it's easy to join. I don't think that's an endorsement of the country, given the countries involved. Well, then we will have to exceed to their standards at some point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I will say, I mean, I think one of the differences um, uh, in, in the analysis uh, is about expectations, right? And, and Derek is looking for something that's better. And I, I will admit that I, I was a little pleasantly surprised with the TPP. Uh, the way the administration was selling it, um, talking so much about setting rules, uh, so much about exports, um, that just really buying into the mercantilist approach to trade negotiations <clears throat> and, and doing it with gusto. Um, I, I was thinking that the TPP would be less ambitious uh, than it is. And so seeing it as sort of a standard trade agreement involving 12 countries, um, taking on a few new issues, um, that, that to me is a, is a positive. Um, it, it, it's not worse than past agreements, uh, and, it, and it's moving things in the right direction. So I think maybe the expectations where, you know, how, how high of a score do you need to have before you think the TPP is good, I, I think, is where, is where the difference lies. Um, we're going to open up to questions. Just wait for, uh, I'll call on you and wait for the mic to come, please, and identify yourself and, and your affiliation. And don't launch it into a diatribe, because I didn't do that, right? So you can't. Let's <laughs> <laughs> get, right get Get him a mic, please. This, this man here. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, Jean-François Boitin. Uh, a question on uh, the market access or tier one, I think, uh, that you grade. I understand that you graded the average of the TPP countries. What grade would you assign specifically to the US? And given the very few liberalization that are uh, made by the US, especially in the short term, would it be more than two or three? And wouldn't that, which is a testimony to the skill of Mike Froman as USTR, not be the reason why there is not more liberalization uh, that would satisfy you? Uh, I'll take a quick, a quick stab at that. Um... We are much more interested in seeing U.S. liberalization here at home. The, the domestic barriers to trade are, are very costly. Um, the uh, preservation of tariffs on a lot of agricultural products, the duration of those tariffs, a, a, you know, the 30-year, it's not even a phase-out on, 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 on pickup trucks. It, it's, it's, it's all backloaded to 2047 or 2048. Um, so, I think the USTR did what trade negotiators do, and that is to negotiate to open foreign markets and keep yours closed. Mm -hmm. uh, so in that regard, he was successful. Um, I would like to see more liberalization here, but, there, but look, why do we continue to protect the textile industry uh, with these rigid rules of origin? Uh, the, the, the benefits from the agreement that should accrue to Vietnamese producers and U.S. retailers and consumers uh, are, are, are shifted to, to, to those producers. Anyway, there's, there's a lot of protectionism that's remaining, but ultimately we're, we're, we will liberalize. The score wouldn't be that much different. I mean, the, the, right now, on an MFN basis, 36% of U.S. tariffs are duty-free. Uh, on entry into force, 90% will be. So that's a lot of liberalization. There's just some political um, holdouts that are, that are problematic. Uh, briefly, 
I agree. You know, you were leading me, and I, I'm following you. Um, you're, I'm going to the water, and I'm going to drink some. Um, the, you know, the, the administration's tariff claims are, of course, restricted by the fact that U.S. tariffs in most cases are not that high. And so, hey, we've re- eliminated thousands and thousands of 1% tariffs. It's not the administration's fault. It's just not really that interesting. Uh, I can think of three cases where I would like to think more liberalization was possible. This is off the top of my head. I was in the room. I don't know what's actually possible. Uh, my response when my colleagues at USTR say that country wouldn't have agreed to that, I said, cut them out of the negotiations. Get a better agreement with nine countries instead of one with 12. So there's a there, there's approach here that are fundamentally different. But the cases I can think of are the, the massive protect, the non-conforming measures and services. You know, a lot of them are in transport, and, and we started it, you know, in shipping. So there's one. Um, I don't, we could have gotten possibly better terms on SOEs. Um, depends on who's, which, which terms are being blocked by which country. If we had given the Vietnamese better access in textiles. And then I agree with Dan about agriculture. Agriculture is, you know, it's not bad. Um, it's a positive. I can see why the farm states like it because Japan is more open than it was. But the second most protectionist country in my own rating in agriculture after Japan in the agreement was the U.S. I'm like, we're the most competitive comprehensive agriculture export in the world, but we're not opening our market as much as others. That's not a sensible position in my view. It may be politically justified. You know, we bought off Paul Ryan with the with dairy provisions and now he'll support the agreement and we still got some opening. It may be a politically good move, um, but it, it doesn't show that this is like we, we were hell bent for agricultural liberalization, which would be what would be the interest of the US as a whole. Other questions? <clears throat> uh, one, two, three. So uh, the, the, the lady there. Thank you. Michelle Egan, Wilson Center. Um, my question is, is that you've got final provisions for the future. This is a temporal dimension. Many tariffs will be in the future. How would you grade, given your knowledge of past free trade agreements, implementation and compliance provisions? You're talking about dispute settlement provisions when you say compliance? Well, this is a, across a whole bunch of <coughs> sectors here. And we're seeing, we've got an argument here that the provisions in SOEs are weak, there are exemptions in services. So how effective do you think the US um, and others will be in the actual implementation and compliance? There's one thing about saying there's a deal on the table. There's another thing about what is its overall implementation and compliance and impact. I, I think that's a great question, and there's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, if you look at past FTAs, there aren't a lot of disputes. There, there's not a lot of compliance, uh, you know, com- pursuit of compliance. Uh, there were a couple disputes under NAFTA, but then those, those dispute provisions didn't work so well, and we haven't seen any others. And with other FTAs, there really just aren't any. So you get the sense that countries are signing these, and then uh, you don't know what they're doing with them. Now, maybe it just means they've reduced all their tariffs and the rules themselves aren't that important, so there's nothing to enforce. Uh, maybe the TPP is a little bit different because it's got these more extensive rules, and if they're going to mean anything, somebody actually needs to, you know, to bring complaints. Um, so so I, don't, I don't really have a good answer, except there's a lot of uncertainty. The one thing I, I will say is that if you look at the dispute provisions, um, they, they've tried hard to, to make sure there's not the NAFTA problem where panels get blocked. And it's complicated what they've done, and I see why it had to be complicated. At the WTO, it works because you have a director general who can get the panels established. The TPP doesn't have that. Um, so I think they've done a good job of, of, making a, of creating a dispute settlement process that will work if people use it. Um, the question is, are people going to use it? And that's going to depend on future administrations, future governments. I don't know. What is the next U.S. Uh, administration going to do in terms of pursuing implementation of the TB? Well, it depends who that person is, obviously. Um, one other point is that there are a number of provisions that are just not subject to dispute settlement. So the regulatory coherence chapter. Well, that's not going to be enforced because it's not subject to dispute settlement. So uh, I think, it, like w- with the rest of it, there's some good and some bad in there. Um, I think it, you know, many provisions are enforceable. Uh, what we don't know is whether anyone will choose to enforce them. Just to take services as an example, I don't locate this as an enforcement issue. I think the provisions, if they were fully enforced, still wouldn't bring us the gains that 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 we need. 
Um, they may not be fully enforced, but I have, a, I have a prior problem. And I think there's obviously the political danger that we will sell them as major services liberalization, and then people will act as if we're not enforcing the rules, and, oh, we've, you know, we haven't enforced them, we need to punish these countries. But the rules aren't liberal, services liberalization at, at that scope, and so enforcement isn't the issue. Now, that's, that's an opinion. We, I agree with the point of uncertainty. This is one of the problems with, with such a huge document in all these countries. But, I mean, I would locate the problem prior to enforcement. I don't think that full, full enforcement of these rules is going to get huge gains for the U.S. Certainly people arguing that they are are setting us up for this idea that the trade treaty wasn't enforced and that was the issue, when I don't think that is the issue. I, I would also add, I, I think, beyond just enforcement and dispute settlement, uh, there's sort of a soft power uh, element to this. Uh, trade agreements are are peculiar in that we, uh, the countries will all agree to do something and everyone believes that they're just pretending uh, <laughs> that, that they don't actually agree to do those things and so we assume that they're, that they're going to violate the rules as soon as uh, the U.S. certainly does this, violate the rules as soon as we agree to them mm-hmm. and, um, but the, the having the text uh, and an agreement um, it creates a, um, a sort of a, a framework for future diplomatic pressure. Uh, I think we're certainly going to see that in terms of the U.S. telling countries how, they, how it expects them to implement uh, these provisions. Um, the biologics provision, is it five, is it eight? Um, you know, wh- what will actually come out of that depends a lot on USTR and how much pressure they put on countries uh, to implement those. So th- wherever there's some ambiguity, I think we're going to see years and years uh, of talking about how to implement these provisions and 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 what each country thinks they should be, um, and it and it may depend a lot on on how much energy is put into that in the future. Sean, did you, you have a question? Yeah. Um, and then one more after that, and then we right there, and then we have to uh, take a break. Thanks, Dan. Very, very interesting discussion. Sean Donnelly from the U.S. Council for International Business. One short comment, and then then a question. Um, I'm, I'm pleased to see what I perceive to be a Cato softening of your criticism on ISDS uh, from your earlier almost jihad against it. I think <laughs> many of us do think having the option to to uh, go to independent arbit- expert arbitration as opposed to just the national court in Vietnam or Malaysia is is useful. But my question is, is a different one. Um, how seriously do you take the the threat that we always hear that if TPP doesn't pass, if the U.S. Uh, doesn't approve it, uh, Asia will go to the RCEP or something else and will have a much lower standard. Is that a, is that a realistic uh, alternative, and, and how should we deal with that? Thanks. Personally, I don't think the, the, the deals are mutually exclusive at all. Um, uh, I think what's more significant about not getting the TPP done is the fact that business wants to move on and, and supply chains are going to be established and, and they're going to ossify and it's going to be harder to change th- those around if there's an RCEP or not, but if there's not a TPP. I, to me, the costs of failure uh, exceed the, the benefits of success in the short term and that failure is manifest in the impenetrability of some of these markets uh, if, if we are left behind, if we're not paying attention, if we're not involved. So. I think it's very important that this gets done for, for that reason. I'm not an RCEP expert, but you know, for I read people who seem to know more about it than I do, and they all seem pretty skeptical that there's going to be an RCEP anytime soon. So I think RCEP's got a lot of its own problems. People hold it out as, well, there's a threat of RCEP, so we better act. I don't know. I'm a little skeptical. Um, I haven't softened on ISDS, by the way. <laughs> I was afraid not. <laughs> I, I, don't, I, I agree with that. I don't, I don't think RCEP, I mean, there may be an RCEP. Uh, I answer this question the same way every time. RCEP will not be real liberalization because India is in it, so it won't be. That's, you know, so we'll either get no, no real change in the status quo, diplomatic theatrics, or not. Um, so I consider that a diplomatic issue, not an economic issue. So RCEP will have no liberalization because India is in it, and TPP will have no liberalization because the United States is in it. No, the, one is a necessary <laughs> statement. One is merely an empirical evaluation. <laughs> okay, uh, uh, this gentleman right in the, in the center there, and then we have to take a break. Thank you. Rex Wempen, Northern Research. This is a question for um, <clears throat> Mr. Watson. Or Dr. Watson, you brought up uh, some numbers earlier, so did Ambassador Froman. I was wondering if you could speak uh, specifically about the 
uh, tariff levels that are going to come down in the TPP versus the tariff levels which will remain in China, assuming the TPP passes? Thank you. I, you mean, so what, what are the tariffs that China is imposing on U.S. Impo on, uh, imports from the United States? Um, I mean, obviously, they're not going to be lowering tariffs in the TPP. They're not in the TPP. Um, I, I guess I don't really understand your question. It's a tough one. Apologies. Uh, allow me to clarify. So uh, overall uh, levels in, in trade from Asia that will be affected uh, by the TPP, I suppose, is the, is the direction I'm going. And so if we import a significant amount from China, but when we attempt to export, we're met with trade barriers in China. And when we import a significant amount from Japan, um, <coughs> we, we face the same issues. When we, how much are we importing in, J in Japan, to Japan, or exporting to Japan rather, which will be positively affected by this versus how much are we attempting to export to China, which will not be, uh, affected by this. So how much in, in total will this uh, TPP affect our overall trade with Asia? Thanks. Yeah, uh, you know, that's a very practical question. I, I don't have the, those numbers off the top of my head um, in terms of, of quantity of trade. I, I, I would say, um, you know, certainly from liberalization in the TPP, those, those numbers will change. Um, you know, uh, that, that one of the things about preferential trade agreements is that while they increase trade, they also divert trade. So we'll, the, a lot of that increase in trade will go to, um, will go to particular countries. So, so I think, you know, we'll be importing more from TPP countries as a share. We'll be exporting more to TPP countries as a share. Uh, that will impact our trade relationship with China. Um, but what those numbers are at the end of the day, I, I, don't, I don't have that um, but I, I mean, I think the, the the trend is there. It's it's something that will happen. I don't know what the what the amount is. And it'll certainly affect supply chains, and and uh, it'll change the nature and composition of where things are produced. But it's very hard to tell to answer your question. Anyway, we we uh, have, to have to take a break now. There's we're going to take a water break. It's out in the in the winter garden. Thank you for coming and for your attention. We have another panel uh, reconvening at eleven. So you've got about twelve or thirteen minutes before. We hope you can come back. So thanks very much. <laughs>